I'm Emily. And you're listening to A Sprinkle of Sugar, A Dash of Murder, a true crime podcast with an element of baking. What are we having this week? So, this week we are still covering The Night Stalker. Yeah. Go check out the documentary, The Night Stalker, on Netflix. Uh, the full name Emily has right now. Go. The Hunt for a Serial Killer. It's so cool. Um, it's such a good documentary. Just, um, I think it's pretty well made. Yeah. I do have a couple complaints. You heard them in the last episode. I won't go back into it. But anyway, we are covering episodes three and four uh, this time around. Yes. So I had to think of something else to make. Last week, I made minty mango mojitos. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and the reasoning behind it was because he had really horrible, nasty teeth. <laughs> a lot of his victims said he had nasty breath. Even someone said he kind of smelled like a goat. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I just thought that. You know, he needed some mint in his life, and we needed some minty mojitos as well. Yep. So this this week, I made a little bit more gourmet. I really made us a nice meal. Um, <laughs> I will make us a nice meal. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I'll be honest. I have not made it yet, but I will make it. Um, so I think everyone's heard of chicken parmesan, and if yep. not, it's amazing. Um, it's literally just chicken you know, baked in the oven with um, Parmesan cheese, garlic, and uh, breadcrumbs. Mm, classic. Mm-hmm. And then you just put, you know, some uh, pasta down with some tomato sauce over top of it. Delicious. And it's a good, it's a good ass meal. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so the reasoning behind why I picked chicken Parmesan was because at one point in the um, documentary i'm pretty sure it's just in the first episode uh gil who's kind of the underdog initially uh when he was first on the uh when he was first became a homicide detective Mm -hmm. he was out to dinner with them and he says that before this you know he grew up in a hispanic town he really only ate mexican food uh he was not used to eating anything else and he went out to eat with a couple of the guys, and they went to an Italian restaurant. And so he picks something that he had never heard of off the menu because he hadn't heard <laughs> of anything on the menu. And so he checked, picked chicken parmesan. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, him and Frank Salerno had, like, a really kind of cute exchange at that point <laughs> as if they're dating. Yeah. Well, they were partners, so, you know. All right, Emily. So let's get started. Episode three. Yes. So, end of episode two, they're waiting. Uh, They had just planted some officers into this dentist office um, to wait for him to come back. So, I think a few days go by, maybe a week at the most, um, where the officers are there every single day. But then the LAPD, I believe it's the LAPD, decides he's not coming in and they're wasting too much money with these Mm -hmm. officers in the office all day so they pull the officers out and instead put in like an alarm system in the dentist office where the dentist can like press a button and it'll alert the cops to come if he comes in right july 15th 1985 day 120 that very first day that the officers are pulled the doctor called and is like where were you richard came in today 
And he kept hitting the alarm and it didn't work. It had like malfunctioned. That is just so ridiculous. Yeah. I wish that like why couldn't he have just like dialed nine one one and just like left it on the hook or like Yeah found an excuse to leave. You know, if he, all he would have had to do Exactly. I feel like he could have done something else to tip off the police. Yeah. Especially if he had to go through this whole dental procedure with them. He could have slowed down that procedure, been like told there had to be other people in there, like a right. dental hygienist, uh, like go call nine one one. Right. I don't yeah, I don't understand that either. I am curious, like, why that was their only option. Why, like, maybe he thought that they were coming, or maybe they thought that they didn't want to, to burst in on this, like, they were going to get him on his way out or something. Yeah. That could, that's the only, like, logic I can think of it. But once again, he finds, some, or he gets away with it. Yeah. Just barely. Yeah. That and, day they pulled the officers out. Like, Ooh, that the frustration. Oh my my secondhand frustration for I the know. detectives is like through the roof. I know. I just don't know how like they're already probably on the verge of at least Gil is probably already on the verge of a mental breakdown. Yeah. You know, how does that just not throw you over the edge? Yeah, for real. So July twentieth, nineteen eighty five, day one twenty five. Max and Layla Needing, I believe is how you say it, um, were found in Glendale, California, dead of gunshot and knife wounds. Um, Max was 68 and Layla was 66. And their daughter Judith was going to meet them for coffee that morning. And she didn't hear anything from them and immediately like suspected it because they're the type to answer the phone and like be in contact especially if you have plans Mm -hmm. so she got to their house and saw the pool gate was open and that their back door was open and she saw them in their bedroom and max's head was almost decapitated and layla's face was shot off with the 22 with the 22 too yeah those are like i said earlier that's a small caliber that is if it's shot to the point, like, that's aggression. That's a lot of bullets. Yeah. Because they're small. It's going to, like, literally leave, like, the tip of a eraser. So one wouldn't do that. Yeah, no. One no. wouldn't shoot someone's face off. So, like, he would have just had to light it up, unfortunately. Keep firing. Yeah. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poor Judith. That's, yeah. And their whole to family. Find, that, I would never want to see that. So what do you think? Okay, just step out of this. In your, if you were to come up on a situation where you think it might, like, they're already not answering, you're worried about them, like a family member or just a friend, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. um, and you're seeing all these signs, the back gate is open, it's never open, now their back door is wide open, would you continue at that point? Would you, do you think, personally, you would go in? Knowing, no. Knowing what you know, knowing that you could see something horrifying because i wouldn't want to and if i was that suspicious if i saw something as suspicious as their doors are Mm -hmm. open and everything no i wouldn't i'd call the cops all right so personally i'm too curious of a person not to (sighs) oh really yes and i know this about myself but also i mean there is a nurse side of me so what if i run in like and i need to like save their life 
you know, I, I don't think I could just stay back. I think I would have to go in. And, True. I guess I, yeah. I would might I would probably think that too. Like, what if they are alive? And then I would want to help. But right. Yeah, so I don't know what I would do. I know. It is hard to say. I mean, and you don't know what she'll do. Even in that situation, I might freeze at the door and just yeah. be in shock. Or I might just not even think about it. Who knows? But yeah. um, it's just, it's interesting to think about because... You kind of already, with that scene, you kind of already know you're walking into something bad. Like, they're not answering. You know, you're yelling. You're yelling for them. Not answering, so. Something bad. going on. Well. And, I mean, who knows? The person could still be in the house, too. Yeah. So. They're, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of circumstances that go into it. Like, you can't know for sure. It's just interesting to think about. Yeah. All right, anyway, sorry about that. Go on. <laughs> so that same morning in Sun Valley, there was another murder. And the front porch of the house in Sun Valley had an Avia shoe print. So they go to the back of the house where the door was unlocked, and there's another shoe print. So this guy is, you know, broad daylight because it's morning now. Or maybe it happened in the night and they were discovered on the same morning. Right, so it happened right. the same night. So he's not that far away. Again, double crimes throughout the night. Mm-hmm. And this time it is a home of China Rong Kolvananth. I hope I said that right. Sorry. Um, and he was 32. He was shot in the head in his bedroom his wife was sexually assaulted, and their eight-year-old son was as well. Oh, yeah. And he was at that house for three hours. So he, a lot of the time, I think, is, like, pretty quick for him. Sometimes he stays and, like, eats. But um, he was at this house for a long time, and he took a lot of jewelry as well. So this was a robbery as well. And sometimes he robs them, sometimes he doesn't, you know. And it's random again. Right. And the, uh, the wife was able to give a very detailed description. And a, the sketch that she gave is the one that finally went public. And they, they released this sketch that day. August 6th, 1985, day 142 at this point. Um, in Northridge, two people, a couple, Chris and Virginia Peterson, had been shot that night um virginia was shot in the nostril and it went like straight through without hitting any vital organs and chris was shot in the side of the head and with a gunshot head or a gunshot wound to his head chris chased him out of the house like he was like the night stalker was scared of them and he chased him away and they both lived that's incredible they they both lived yeah because even though both of them were shot in the face or the head, they were like, uh, it was a bad shot, you know? Right. Or it went, like, clean through. That is that is a miracle. Because she, Virginia was shot through the nostril, and it didn't hit anything vital. Like, she, it went straight through. How does that even... It's that is lucky. a miracle. That really Chance. is a miracle. Yeah. I mean... And good for Chris. He's right. like... I may be bleeding from the head, but I am going to chase you out of my damn home. Yeah. And 
Um, <laughs> I would run too. That'd be pretty scary. Yeah. And what Gil says, I kind of like chuckled at. He was, um, he was like, if someone I shot in the head came running at me, I'd be scared too. <laughs> I'd run off. So like, cause imagine that in your head, like you think this person's coming dead, and they're like, ah, running yeah. at you. Um, but and also with that, um, it just like once again, I mean. We're now on, I mean, he's committed so many crimes, and I've been writing down each time he's killed someone. Mm-hmm. All that's been, I mean, and there's probably more on top of this, too, that we yeah. just don't know about or that the documentary hadn't mentioned. Right. But there's at least 13 deaths so far that we've gone yeah. through. The thing about that is, how did he do it where he goes into someone's house, doesn't even know... The lad of their house doesn't know, you know, like if their bedroom door is going to be locked or if they're going to, he's going to wake someone up, you mm-hmm. know, whatever he does. Um, it's then like, I know that usually when he'd go in the house, he'd kill the man first. Yes. Um, but I just can't believe someone didn't fight back and like. Yeah. I mean, besides that guy that got shot in the head and then he fights back, but. Mm-hmm. Just all those circumstances. I don't know how he didn't... Like, what if he walked into the kid's room first on accident, wakes the kid up, the kid starts screaming, alerts the, the fa- father and mother. Yeah. I just don't yeah. know how it doesn't it doesn't happen, how you just go into someone's house and assume the layout and your first mission is to go you. find the dad. I know. And that's yeah. that's the creepy part about him is he's, he's strangely intelligent when it comes to that. Right. He must be. And I, I think a lot of the men, not all of them, but the men who died, of it's common that they were sleeping. Right. So he's getting in there without waking people up and does it in his sleep. The, you know. But, and that that is when Frank Salerno calls him a coward publicly. Yes. Because he does that. Because this Chris was able to chase him out so he was scared of him and he do, he tries to shoot people while they're sleeping and Frank calls him a coward and then it, that ends up on the front page of the LA Times. With a picture of Frank and all his yeah. personal details. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I shouldn't have said that. But he also said he didn't know it was going to be quoted on in the newspapers when he said that. Mm-hmm. And he said it was after he said that he started sleeping with a gun. Just in case. Which I probably would, too. In your line of work, though, I'm surprised that he... Like, what does he mean by sleep with a gun? Like, is it right under his pillow? Or is it in his nightstand? Yeah. Because there's a lot... There's plenty of... I feel like most cops would sleep with their guns. In their nightstand, at least. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's just an assumption. But that kind of surprised me, because he already works in homicide. You'd think he'd have his gun ready all the time. Right. I don't know. But he said that's the only time in his career he ever slept with a gun. Yeah. Maybe he... He he did say he was the kind of person when he came home, he put his work completely aside and didn't like to talk about it with his family and stuff. So I'm that might be part of it. Like, right. he considers that part of his work, so he doesn't normally and, do that. Yeah, and like you said, he has a family, so... And that's a scary thing, too, being quoted in that paper and... All his personal information on him. He has a family that could be in danger at that point, too. Yeah. And that probably scared the crap out of him. It would be scary. Yeah. Um, 
And it's also at this point where they find, or they're starting to realize that this Night Stalker guy, who isn't called that yet, we're, we're getting there, but yeah. he's paying attention. He's watching the news because after they realize that all of the crime scenes after William Doy had phone lines were all cut because William Doy was able to call 911 to save his, his wife. Mm-hmm. And that was reported in the news. And he learned from that. And after that, he cut all. He started cutting all the phone lines. And they're just, like, realizing that, you know? And the public is in, like, full panic at this time. And there have been at least 30 attacks, not including all these murders, at this point. Um, the security industry starts booming in L.A. Like, people were getting, like their dogs trained Mm -hmm. to be like attack dogs you know and people were buying locks and like all sorts of like security measures like la was booming at that time right and And locks were being sold yeah so and it's also this is when the public as they're becoming more aware of what's going on because more details are being released they start giving it a, him a nickname, and they call him the Walk-In Killer, the Valley Intruder, things like that. But it's the Night Stalker that sticks, and that's what he's remembered as today. So, mm-hmm. and, and he he likes this nickname, which I always hate that. Mm-hmm. But he starts calling himself that at his crime, and like his survivors say that he would say, like, I am the Night Stalker and stuff. So he liked that, unfortunately. That annoys me. Well, it kind of annoys me just because, like, we do it for him. I mean, the walk-in killer. Like, the, yeah. the people are like, that's a stupid name. He needs a cool name. Why does he need a cool name? He's killing right. people. Let's normalize giving killers stupid names. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Like, like if we started naming them, like... Barney. I don't know why that's the first <laughs> name. Barney. But if we the, call if we called him the, Barney, the then, bad teeth killer. Yeah, right. Like the stinky. Killer. Yeah, I don't know. Goat. Goat smelling. Goat man. Goat man. <laughs> that sounds like a really bad superhero. It's Never mind. Man. <laughs> this is why I don't come up with names. <laughs> yeah, actually, how about this? How about next time, well, hopefully there isn't a next time, but we all know there will be. Right. Next time there's a killer out there, come to Emily and ask her what we should call it, and we'll use that. Yeah. <laughs> she called this something real nice. <laughs> Go man! But <laughs> I'm... Oh, God. Okay. So, August 8th, 1985, day 144, is when an attack in Diamond Bar happens and this is what we said in the last episode it was only five minutes from gill's house so this is when pearl and the kids like we said last case or last case last episode left until the investigation Mm -hmm. was over so at the attack in diamond bar um they went to the rear of the house i think the door was open and there was a half-eaten honeydew on the counter and a man was shot in the temple and he was dead and it was a 25 automatic pistol with red primer which is the same gun used with virginia and chris peterson as well so now he's switching it up to a 25 okay 
And also, I know DNA is kind of like a newish thing. So did they not have DNA to to get off that honeydew that he had eaten? And there was a spoon on the counter that he was using to eat from. So That's I what don't, I've been wondering I know. too. When was DNA normalized? Right. I mean, I'm sure they took samples of all that, but maybe it wasn't um, available at that point. Yeah. But it was, like, coming to be like that. But all they could really do is say, unless they had, like, a sample of his DNA, which is pretty rare, they could just link him to all these, you know? But it would be kind of nice. Because it happens a lot. Even, like, I mean, it says a lot of the time, like, you know, if he sexually assaults them, he, that means he left some DNA. Right. Yeah, I guess I guess not. They couldn't use that. So his next crime was on another couple. Um, and the man, Elias Abelweth, he was 35. He was killed. And the woman was sexually assaulted. And she said, he, would, he kept saying, don't look at me. And she says, I swear to God, I won't. And he said, don't swear to God swear to satan so he's using that um satanic thing again mm-hmm. and again with the like don't look at me sort of deal which is strange because sometimes like in the very beginning like we said last episode he wanted to see them to see that fear on their faces but then now he, and then other times he's like don't look at me so it's very Weird. different You're right yeah i don't know what it is So, Gil made a tape of all the details of the case at this point because he started hearing rumors that were floating around among the other, like, departments and police stations, um, and they were getting, like, details wrong, and one of them said that this guy was very weak and he wasn't that dangerous or whatever, and Gil was like, that's completely false. He's a very dangerous individual. So, Gil is kind of like, we need to get the facts straight. We need to start sharing information with each other. So that's when he makes a tape of all the details and sends it to 23 different stations so that everybody was on the same page with this case and no more false details were being spread. And in San Francisco, which is 500 miles away, they start getting crimes there that they believe are the Night Stalker. And it is. Um, So August 18th, 1985, day 154 in the investigation, San Francisco um, detective Frank Falzon and his partner are called to the murder of Peter Pan, who was 66 years old. He was shot in the head, again in his bed, which is the men are usually, like we said, sleeping Mm -hmm. or on the couch or something. And Mrs. Pan was raped and also shot in the head, but she lived, amazingly. He had eaten food from their fridge, thrown up, masturbated on their floor and then carved satanic symbols in the wall and he wrote jack the ripper on their wall i'm so confused by that yeah why did that happen it's so gross i mean all of it is nasty and disgusting but like that extra element of like it's it's different too he as far as we know like the documentary said that hadn't happened before and now he's writing, like, Jack the Ripper. Like, your crimes are not similar to Jack the Ripper. So why uh, why, why are you writing this? And there's the sat- satanic writing. 
And okay, the thing that like freaks me out the most about this, because I have a, a theory, which, sorry, I have a theory that I know is not accurate, but it's just, it freaks me out because he pukes, he like ejaculates mm-hmm. and writes these satanic symbols. When I was talking last episode, I was going to say like, I was going to kind of talk about this. He's very demonic in what he does. Yeah. And, you know, some people believe that, like, demons walk among us. And mm-hmm. what if that's kind of what he was... He, what if he was just, like, a demon? Like, literally. Yeah. Just a horrible... Like, just doing as much evil as he possibly could. I don't know why the fact that him throwing up and just being... It just makes it so... It makes me feel like that's so uh, monstrous. I don't yeah. know why. No, I've, yeah. It just doesn't, it seems like it, like exorcism almost. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like the, he's possessed. Yeah. He's puking and I'm, writing th- these things on the walls. and. Yeah, I think when I was, I watched this with my parents. And I remember, I'm pretty sure this. Mm, yeah. He said, like, in the documentary, he said at one point some quote about how the devil has walked with him for a long time and something about, like, that. And my mom, I remember her saying, she was like, I believe that. I believe that. Like, that the devil gets to you, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and as religious people, like, we do believe that, you Right, know? right. So, yeah, I would, I don't know. He's definitely not right in the head, so. I don't. That influence of- and there's more, there's more to this theory that I'll go into after um, Emily covers it. But that's the first time I've, I'm mentioning my, my thought on this guy. Yeah. So the Peter, Peter Pan's murder was also a 25 um, semi-automatic with a red primer. So Frank and Gil, they know it's him. Because of, it's, apparently they looked into it too, and this red primer is not in use anymore. It's not sold anymore. So this is an old gun. It has to be the same person. And San Francisco is 500 miles away. So they travel up there. They take a plane to San Francisco to investigate. And Laurel Erickson and her partner catch wind of this, and they see each other on the plane. They, they're the, um... Reporters. Reporters. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot to say that. <laughs> um, so, Frank and Gil are not happy to see them. Because, like I said, there's kind of this rivalry between them going on. Right. But, um, Laurel sees them and she's like, yep, we're in the right place. Right. She already knew it. Yeah. Because they, they were going, the reporters were going off a hunch that it was going to be the same guy. And when they saw them, she's like, confirm. Yep. She knew it. So, and one of the San Francisco police officers lets it slip to her and her partner that there were writings on the wall and that um, the pentagrams were drawn on there. And they were like, whoa. Because in L, back in L.A., they didn't know any of those details. Mm-hmm. And the San Francisco officer thought they did know that already. Yeah, he's like, oh, you know, the writing on the walls, like... Like they've been seeing. Yeah. He said, like, same old shit or something. Mm-hmm. And so it starts blowing up in the media that devil worship is all, is like the MO of this case. 
which it's really not i don't think like that's not the sole purpose you know but it starts like and i think this happened in the 90s so it's not quite there yet but like the satanic panic era is kind of coming up too so yeah so laurel confronts frank about this and she's like why haven't you shared this what's up with the writings and frank is total poker face he's like i don't know where you heard that but no and like completely denies it well actually i liked what he said and i thought that it was respectful because he responds with yeah i don't know where where you're getting your information but you're gonna have to talk with the san francisco police about anything regarding this investigation yeah and then he leaves because the thing is, she caught him outside and was, like, asking him these questions. And once again, he's showing respect to the San Francisco police by not, um, you know, impeding on their own investigation. Right. Because this is outside of his jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So it really wouldn't be right for him to talk to speak on it. True, yeah. I didn't think of that, like, as the reason he said that. But, yeah. Right. I thought it was respectful. Um, so the chief of San Francisco police tells the San Francisco mayor, Diane Feinstein, about the links to the case in L.A. And she holds a press conference and blows the leads on everything. She tells the public about the shoe print, about the kind of weapon, and she, she shouldn't have. She blew it, basically. I cannot. That just gets me so mad. Yeah. For the investigators. Mm-hmm. And Frank and Gil were livid. Mm-hmm. And apparently the the chief of San Francisco did not tell her not to release the info. So she thought it was okay to do that. But obviously that's vital information that now he's going to know... That they're on to him. Because he doesn't know they know that much yet, you know? Right. So, 45 minutes after she holds her press conference, Sheriff Sherman Block at in L.A. holds his own press conference. And he lets everyone know, like, hey, that was critical info. And you just made a big mistake. And you need to stop talking. Mm-hmm. And, like, response to that. So, he wanted to make it known that you just effed up and you just put us at jeopardy of ruining this whole investigation. And the way that he did it, it was so great because, like, so when she did that whole investigation, or when she did that, she blew it all with the first press conference, Salerno and Gil were pissed. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know what, screw this. And they go to a bar and they just start drinking. Yeah. And that's when the chief comes up and he's talking to them and they're like, you guys messed up big time. Like, why? You know, and they're kind of going off on him. Mm -hmm. So then he leaves and he calls them and says, stop drinking, eat some food, meet me at the station in 45 minutes. And then that's when he held that press conference. I just thought that was kind of awesome because it's like, then he's kind of like, you know what? I got to do everything I can to make this right. Even though it really doesn't fix anything. Right. It's It's letting them know, though. Like, not getting them... Or, I don't know, letting them know you made a mistake, you know? Yeah, right. And and kind of owning it, too, in a sense. Because, like, it was him that that debriefed her and told her all that, right? No, it was the San Francisco police. Oh, this wasn't who told the San- her. I didn't realize this wasn't the San Francisco chief. 
Yeah, this is the the LA chief who made the second press conference. Oh, yeah, in response to them. Good, but still, like, I I think that just like at this point in this whole movie that they need to make about this, (laughs) it would just be such a big like coming together moment. I feel, yeah. I don't know. I just I really liked the the description that they had where they were like I could just I could just picture it so well. Yeah. Like them in the bar, they're pissed off, they're drinking, mm-hmm. and then they get inspired again because they have the support of their chief. Yeah. I don't know. It was just. It was yeah for sure. I was like yeah. <laughs> right and yeah, someone's like defending them. Yes. So August twenty fourth, nineteen eighty five. Um, day 160 in Mission Vejo. I probably said that wrong, but okay. Um, 29-year-old Bill Carnes is shot in the head and he's sent to a hospital. I, I think he ended up dying because the documentary kind of didn't say. It just said he was sent to the hospital. Hmm. So I don't remember. Sorry. But um, his fiance was also attacked, and he tied her up and sexually assaulted her and told her, I am the Night Stalker. So again, he's like totally owning this name, not trying to pretend that he's not. Um, and she did live, so. But that's another attack. And then a young man named James Romero saw the car that he was driving, and he got a partial plate from this car and that information was released to the news media right away and someone called saying that's my friend's car my friend's car was just stolen and it matched james's description and it was a 1976 toyota station wagon and it was orange so it was very noticeable it's a bright color and everything and then they found that car parked in a garage and abandoned and they waited a little bit to see if he would come back and get the car to go drive somewhere, but he never came back. So it was at that point they decided to get a partial, to like investigate the car. And they got a partial print. And so now um, with the technology at the time, they didn't have automatic prints. So they had to like compare it and paperwork which would take a very long time and it's harder to be able to tell and see on paper than a computer picking it up for you right it's someone literally examining it with a uh, magnifying glass yeah so they had to they had this partial print but they would have to wait and see if they had any records of this print already in their system and if they didn't they just had to wait for another one to show up right so August 27th, 1985, day 163, um, the police got a call from a girl saying her father was friends with someone named Rick, who she and her father suspected was the night killer, or the night stalker, whatever, he doesn't deserve a proper name, um, and this guy, Rick, had bragged to her father about details of a murder in Monterey Park with a gun that he now knew the father was part of the investigation because that information was released. Oh. So they recovered this gun that Rick had talked and was in contact with because Rick had 
given the gun to somebody, I guess. Maybe in an attempt to, like, get away with it. Right. Like, or get rid of it, but he had his prints all over it. So, the police, after getting this gun and, like, testing it out, they now believe this Rick is for sure the killer. Or at least, like, it's a very strong possibility. Mm-hmm. So, in San Pablo, a bracelet is surrendered to the police by a young woman, and she said she was given the bracelet by her boyfriend, Armando Rodriguez, who had gotten it from a guy named Rick. And Rick wore an ACDC hat, had a black members-only jacket, which was another detail a lot of the kids had said when they were giving descriptions. He had, like, that black members-only jacket. Mm -hmm. And they said he had really bad teeth. And this woman said this guy who gave the bracelet had really bad teeth. So now all the details are kind of working together. Like They're like, this is definitely the guy. Mm -hmm. And this bracelet she got is most likely stolen from somewhere that he had, you know, broken into. San Francisco police officer Frank Felzon goes to Armando Rodriguez's house and says, listen, buddy, you're gonna help us. And he says, absolutely not. I'm not gonna help you. My friend is not the night stalker. Like, you can suck it, basically. So... Frank puts Armando in the police car and says, like, you're going to cooperate with us. And Armando wants to fight. And they start being aggressive. And Frank falls on. Um, The officer starts to, like, wind up his fist like he's going to hit him. And Armando just goes, Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez, says his name. And I think, I don't know, I... I admire Frank Falzon, <laughs> but right. just like the way he told that story in the documentary, like he was like, I was going to get this name out of this guy no yeah. matter what. And he was pretty proud of himself for that. Yeah. But also that's kind of like, uh, <laughs> I mean, I was also- there's a lot at stake, so I understand it, Yeah. but also that's a little unethical. <laughs> I know. I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, please brutality, please brutality. Yeah, like, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, wow, that... And he's really bragging about it. He was. I know. I he was, was really of... like, I was I was gonna hit him. And I was like, oh, oh okay. But it <laughs> you... was important that he got, they got that information. Like, that was a huge yeah. point. In the, like, that was actually the, the turning point in this whole case. Is yeah. Is getting his... Richard Ramirez. Yeah. So that's the end of episode three. Now we're gonna go in the final episode. Episode four. Um... And so I, before we get into the episode, I, uh, and the episode, the beginning of the episode does mention a little bit of this, but, um, I looked up some of, now that we have a name, I looked up some of like his childhood. Mm -hmm. So I'll just begin with that. So he was born in El Paso, Texas, and he was the fifth child of Mercedes and Julian Ramirez. And his mother, Mercedes worked in a boot factory that, exposed her to a lot of chemicals and gases while she was pregnant and all of his siblings and him had birth defects because of this wow um ranging from things like respiratory problems to like bone deformities and all the children had like issues because of like the toxic fumes and things that she had she was exposed to wow yeah um at two years old a dagger fell on his head and caused, like, a very large forehead 
laceration. So that's a head injury. And then at five, Richard fell off a swing and hit his head pretty hard. And (laughs) did you hear that? What's happening to your voice? Oh my God, I don't know. Ugh, glitch in the matrix. Okay. (laughs) And he started having epileptic seizures. Seizures after that. I can speak. (laughs) 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 I was going to make fun of you and I can't even say epileptic. I'm a nurse. I say this word. (laughs) Epileptic. No, I still feel like a doof. Whatever. We know. Epileptic seizures. There There. you go. I just have to say it like a robot. Okay. Um, and at nine years old, a lot of people he knew said he started preferring isolation instead of hanging out with people. And at 12 years old, the only person he really hung out with was his cousin, Mike, who was a very bad influence. Um, and he had a really bad home life as well. He was a thief as a kid. Richard was. He would like steal things. And his father was pretty abusive. His father tied him to a cross in a cemetery one night and, like, left him there overnight as, like, a punishment. That is so messed up. Yeah, that's... But then he started sleeping in this cemetery at night after that. Um, Kind of, like, to escape his father so he wouldn't have to be home. And I guess the cemetery was, like, close by. But that's also really depressing. That is so messed up. Yeah. And then this cousin, Mike... Um, when he was 13 years old, Mike showed him pictures of raped and dismembered Vietnamese women from, like, you know, war crimes during the Vietnam How War. was Mike? Do, like, he was older. Um, maybe 20s or something. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. And then later, the, this is still when he was 13, Mike killed his wife. He shot her in front of Richard Ramirez. And and he killed her, and he claimed to be sexually aroused by this. So it kind of all stems from this childhood. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of people grow up with, like, bad situations, bad home life, and don't turn into this. But, right. you know, like, that's a lot of circumstances that could contribute. And he had, like, head injuries, especially, like, when you're saying it's to, like, the front of his head. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of where your frontal lobe is. And yeah. that's a lot of, like, your judgment and where your personality comes from is there. So, like, when you have, yeah. like, a frontal lobe injury, that does cause a lot of behavioral problems. Mm-hmm. And he was, prob- he was like, beat a lot by his father and stuff like that as well. Yeah. So that's, that's a little bit into his childhood. And he also had a lot of drug habits, a lot of drug addictions. Yeah. Which does not help to already existing mental issues. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So that, going back to the documentary now, um, Richard went into a library and asked for books on like horoscope and torture. And the librarian remembers him looking like really funky and smelling bad. And, um, you know, his trademark. (laughs) So, August 30th, 1985. At that point, honestly, though, this guy comes in looking for that. I don't care how polite you want to be. Call the police. Yeah. Especially Horoscope, I probably wouldn't blink an eye at, but, like, the the, the torture thing. (laughs) The torture thing, and then he already, like, had a pretty good description of this guy, so he already knew, like, this guy just did not look right. Yeah. 
August 30th, 1985, day 166, Frank Salerno and Gil are told by Frank Falzon that in San Francisco that he got a name, Richard Ramirez. So they compared the print that they already had, that partial print from the orange Toyota, to Richard Ramirez's previous you know, printing, because yeah. he's been arrested before. But they didn't know that. They didn't have a name. So now right. they could compare the prints. And they also found a booking photo from a previous offense. And it's just like the sketch. And it fits everyone's descriptions. Terrible, terrible, nasty-looking teeth and everything. Right. So they're like, yep, that's absolutely him. And a warrant went out for the murder of Peter Pan and attempted murder of his wife at this time. And San Francisco wanted to go public immediately about this warrant and saying his name and everything, that Richard Ramirez was the killer. Because San Francisco was worried about what the media would do if they found out the police were sitting on a warrant. But Frank Salerno and Gil Carrillo wanted to keep it hush-hush for 24 hours Mm -hmm. to try and catch him um, so that Ramirez would not be alerted and, like, flee. And I get, I really get both sides of that. I do. But I, and I don't know if it's because the documentary, like I said, really sets you up to sympathize more with Frank uh, Salerno and Gil. But I was, I I found myself leaning on their side, like, in all of this, you know? Absolutely. Um, So I don't know. I kind of, yeah, you don't want him to be spooked off and leave. No, I I understand that fully because yeah, when they go into hiding, then then what are you supposed to do? And who cares? It's gonna make it harder. I mean, okay, yes. If he goes out and he murders someone else, then it, then I understand. I mean, that's a circumstance that that is a risk you're taking by doing this. Yeah, I, I get it. But also, he needs to know that they don't know this information because then he'll hide and run right. off. And exactly. Because they never found those shoe prints at any other crime scene after that. No. After that yeah. press conference. And they never found any other kind of evidence because he listens to that. Yeah, he stopped wearing the shoes and everything. Yeah, so it's it's dumb. I just like for the... Pu- and then the reasoning is if the public knew, who gives a crap right. if the public knew? The only issue that would arise from this is if someone ends up dead. Right. And... I mean, the public wanted the police to catch him. So this is the best way. Yeah. But on the news that night, um, there was a media blitz. So the warrant and the information got out anyway. And Salerno and Carrillo were pissed. Yeah. They really didn't want that to happen. August 31st, 1985. 167 days into this investigation from that very first murder. 8.15 a.m. that morning, Ramirez is in Arizona visiting his brother, and he's returning to L.A. And he gets off a Greyhound bus, goes into a liquor store after getting off, and that's when he sees his face on the front of every newspaper in that store, and he panics and gets Mm -hmm. on another bus to go to Olympic, just like they thought he would, you know? Um, But someone on the bus had a newspaper, looked up, saw him, and, you know, pulled on the cord to, like, stop the bus. Made it very obvious. Not like he didn't say it, but, like, eyes got wide, put the paper down quickly, like, shifty eyes, pulling the cord. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Made it very obvious. Yeah. 
uh, and he got off the bus and went to a nearby phone booth and called the police immediately. But Richard could see this man dialing, and he, he knew. He knew it was mm-hmm. about him. Mm-hmm. So he gets off the bus and takes off. But the man who was on the phone with the police flagged down a truck driver and was like, go follow, go follow that bus, because he got on a different bus or something. Um, he follows him, this trucker, to like keep eyes on him, which is, this at this point, this is when the community is really working together. Yes. And it's an incredible thing. This is the best this is, story. Yeah. This is, I, I mean, not, I don't want to sound like lighthearted, but like, this doesn't have to, this is like the best, like, catch story of like mm-hmm. you know oh my gosh so at some point he gets on foot richard ramirez and he's he ran across on foot the i-5 freeway um he tried to carjack somebody but failed because this guy like managed to beat him up a little or fight him off at least mm-hmm. and so he's running and runs into like a hispanic neighborhood and Manuel de la Torre got involved when Richard Ramirez tried to get the keys from the keys to a car from a young woman and this guy came up and hit him like really hard with, a, with like a metal stake that he'd pulled out of someone's yard yeah something like that yeah. and the neighbors of this neighborhood that was a weird sentence yeah. but okay um the people of this neighborhood are chasing him down the street. They detain him themselves. They're beating him up. He's all scratched up and bloodied. Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, it's kind of a hilarious thing to see. Because, like, obviously, there are, like, helicopters overhead. You can, like, see, and uh, especially if you watch this documentary, you can see all this footage right. of this. And this whole community is working together. And they just capture him, chase him down, beat him up. I don't feel bad for him at all. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that called? Like, civilian's arrest or something? Like, you know? Kind of like that. And the police come and arrest him. But this crowd is getting, like, bigger and bigger um, as people are coming out. And they start to circle the cop car that he's put in. And the cop who arrested them hears people in the crowd saying, Let's get him! So, like, this (laughs) mob mentality is quickly growing. And then Richard Ramirez later gives this quote, which just makes me, okay. He says, I was just really pissed off at the way things had turned out, that I was under arrest now. And I turned at all the people that were around me, and I spit at them, and I poked my tongue out at them. You're a child. He (laughs) makes a comment like he stuck his tongue out like a serpent. Like, yeah. Okay. Like, whatever. You did not have, like. You were scared. (laughs) Yeah. And and then he also said something like, if I had my pistol, they wouldn't be as brave as they thought they I were. I'm like, I feel like they still would have beat you up. This is a whole crowd versus one person. I feel like they would have managed to subdue you because yeah. you suck. He's and like, so... oh, oh, you're pissed off at the way things turned out. How did you think it was right. going to turn out for you? Right. Well, I, one of the, um witnesses there said that when the police car came around he was like super thankful oh yeah yeah he was like i was tired and like and he, well, like he good thing like, they came he, yeah he's like good thing the police came when they did because he would have been killed yeah they definitely would have killed him which i just thought that this was like such a cool 
full circle kind of story because when you go and uh, Gil, when he was reflecting on his childhood, he talks about how he grew up in a Hispanic town. His neighbors were really important to him. They mm-hmm. were all super close and it was just like a really tight-knit community. And then, I think that's what he was saying. And yeah. And uh, it all ends up in a Hispanic town and they all come together again. Yeah. They take him out. I just loved it. I don't know. It was just yeah. such a good... So proud of this neighborhood. I'm so proud. Yeah. yeah. It, it's just, and like, it just so, it's, it's a, um, what am I saying? Gold star to humanity. Yes. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so, Frank Salerno and Gil Carrillo. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just realized you were saying congratulations to humanity. I, I was, but I, I wasn't going to correct you. you. <laughs> I thought you were congratulating I was I was gonna let you take Just that one. <laughs> okay, go on. Hmm. Ridiculous. So, Frank and Gil get to the Hollenbeck station, which is where he's being held, and it is just surrounded by people. Like people are hearing, you know, it's coming out more and more. Like people are letting other people know, like, hey, he's there, he's yeah. there, and this crowd is getting huge. And. When they go inside, Frank and Gil start to introduce themselves, and Ramirez is like, I know who you are. He knew who Frank Salerno was. And because he had paid close attention to the Hillside Strangler. Right. And he admired this guy, the Hillside Strangler. Like, disgusting. Right. Okay. Um, And he had to actually be heavily guarded as they were escorting him out of Hollenbeck Station. Because there were so many people in there, and there were a lot of rumors that someone was going to kill him, like shoot him from somewhere in the crowd. So they got in the car with him, and people are cheering and celebrating and chanting, and it's like crazy. And someone, as they're driving away, someone literally flashes them. Yeah. Like, I just want to know that mentality. Like, does yeah. she just want her five seconds of fame? I guess so. She just like I don't know. so high on the crowd. Maybe she's just high in general. Maybe yeah, she's really <laughs> like, I'm gonna really. shoot my shot. And yeah. Like, okay. I don't know. I mean, because I just feel like that obsession. Because there is eventually you're gonna go into this. There's an obsession that comes in with uh, Richard Ramirez. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel like that would have sparked already. No. I think that that was more so just the excitement, the crowd, and the the excitement of the day just yeah. makes you want to take your top off. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But yeah, I mean, people do crazy things in a crowd. Yeah. But yeah. So Joyce Nelson's family recalls that they were in a McDonald's when everyone found out. And they said everybody in the restaurant started just cheering and shouting and like, the whole, I mean, this person, he had terrorized California mm-hmm. this entire year, pretty much. And people were just so excited. And Colleen, Joyce Nelson's granddaughter, said that her father was so happy with the way he was caught. Like, he was so pleased that it was citizens who had worked together. And mm-hmm. I'm glad for him that he is... They they get that at least that right. he was happy with the way it went yeah. out, right. 
And the L.A. mayor at the time even said on the news and everything, he was so proud of that community and what they had done. And obviously none of them are going to get in trouble for beating him up because nobody gives a shit. (laughs) So. I know. This is like where I was crying while watching it. Oh, my God. Yeah. It would have been an overwhelming day for Mm -hmm. California community. So they put him... Ramirez in the same cell as Kenneth Bianchi who was the hillside strangler and that was very strategic to let him think like oh I'm a big deal to make him like sit in there and think like oh I'm one of the big guys now I should probably do some talking or something right right so also then the documentary flashes towards like Gil and I started, like, I was, like, crying because he's telling of how he reunited with his wife oh, and his family at that wedding. And I won't go into those details, but it's very heartwarming. It and is I was, very like, oh, heartwarming. Yeah. I was crying at that part, too. Yeah. yeah. Like, it played out like a movie. Like, his sister wanted to make sure she walked in with him because he was the talk. Yeah. And all he cared about was seeing his family and his parents. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, and then. It's very sweet. And then he was talking about that night he went to sleep. And his, I'm teary-eyed talking about this right now. Yeah. And um, he was just, like, really emotional. And his wife knew the reason why he was emotional was because he just wanted his father, like, he just wished his father could be there because his father had just recently passed away. Mm Mm-hmm. And he wished his father could be there to to see him because he feels like he'd be proud. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to cry. I know. It really is. Because then she's, like, she just knew it. She just, they didn't, like, they were just so in love, him and his wife. Yeah. That she just, like, he didn't even have to say what he was thinking. And she just, like, he was with you. Yeah. She knew. Oh, Sweet. it's so, yeah. It's, it's, like, such, it's, like, straight out of a movie. I know. It is. So, they set up a lineup right away and bring in six-year-old survivor Anastasia Haranis again. <laughs> um, and she apparently was, like... She was really good at this, and she identified him right away, and she was like, do I write the number two or the letter? The letter. What am I trying to say? Do I... Do I, like, write out two or do I write the number two or something like that? Yeah, do I I spell out two or do I write the number two? Yeah. Yeah, she... It was just, like, I liked that that because, uh, you know, you're not supposed to say it out loud, like, when... Because you're, you're with several people. Right. And you're... They're all lined up in front of you. They're all saying, um, like, the phrases he would have used. Mm-hmm. And so all these witnesses are there, and they're all supposed to identify him. It's not just her. And so it's funny because you don't want it to... Like, you're spo- it's supposed to be all confidential. You're not supposed to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. And then she just goes... She raises her hand. So, uh, do I spell it's two. out two? Like yeah. Basically just saying, hey, yeah, it's two. And she, she's six, so yeah. she, she might, maybe they told her it's supposed to be confidential, or maybe, maybe they well, yeah. didn't, you know. But, but it's cute. Yeah. It was just like a cute little, like, moment. Yeah. And then this got me crying again when Anastasia, this little girl, um, she meets with Frank and Gil and... She says, I'll go testify in court if it means keeping him locked up so he can't hurt other little girls like he hurt me. And I'm like, that is something a six-year-old should never have to say or do. But the fact that she's able to articulate that and, like, 
willing to do something like that at six years old like that and then gil was like getting emotional about it and then i started crying (laughs) and um that's when she tells him that he reminded her of her teddy bear and i was like oh no i wonder if they're still close i don't know would you want to be i feel like that would just it'd be hard not to have that bring you together yeah i don't know maybe 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 not but yeah so arturo and daniel hernandez are hired to defend richard ramirez and they're new lawyers pretty much they had never handled a case this big and people kind of had like no faith in them that they would be able to do it or handle it and they i i think a lot of people wanted them to be replaced by more experienced lawyers but they were setting out to prove that they could do it Mm-hmm. And I don't, uh, I mean, I kind of want to say good for them, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't want Richard Ramirez to get anything good out of his trial, so. Right, I know, they're defending him, and I'm like, good. Like, the inexperienced guy's defending him, that's fine. Yeah, right. Um, but okay. And in court, it becomes like this big drama fest, basically. And Ramirez is taking every chance he can to just seem wildly ridiculous and out of this world whatever um he has that famous moment like we said last episode he holds up his palm and there's a pentagram on it mm-hmm. um he pleads not guilty but then right after he says that as they're taking him away he goes hail satan as he's being escorted out so that's dumb. gonna help your not guilty plead isn't it wow yeah and then yeah and he flashes his whole the pentagram that was seen at the cent- like at the crime scene that that that'll help you great um and then somebody said in the documentary i think one of the reporters said that like that image of him holding up his palm will be like known for generations i think that's absolutely true because that's one of the most famous images and like that's honestly yeah. the first thing that pops in my head when i think of you know him is that yeah. picture how uh, old was he? I don't know. Hold on. Look at that. How old was... Because he looks young. He does look young. He's, in some pictures, he kind of looks like a teenager. Yeah. He's only 24 years old. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, also, there were a lot of groupies showing up to the trial, um, which are, like, women who were sending him pictures of themselves, either naked or in promiscuous costume and positions and they wrote him love letters and like they were obsessed with him and that makes me sick to my stomach why do they why are these women always coming out there's always that always it's so nasty that's all i gotta say i don't i don't sorry i don't know who you are as people i don't know these women but i think if you do that you're messed up individual and you're nasty Sorry. Yeah, they really do have some daddy issues. <laughs> Anybody who is like knows for a fact you're he's a killer, a rapist, a child abductor. Right. He did this to children and you're like that's hot. Like gross. You're disgusting. You're disgusting. Like those people should be evaluated and Yeah, like what what mentally is wrong with you that you find this right. okay to do and attractive? Ugh. I don't know. And then one of someone in the documentary said he had never seen a killer with so much sex appeal. And I'm like, 
I, I like don't get it though. He's like what about those disgusting. Rotten teeth? Yeah. Like okay, I mean, I guess he's not like other than he's his not horrible looking. Teeth, other than yeah. his teeth. But just when you like think about like how horrible he's like his personal hygiene was, too. and a lot of people said he had like completely cold dead like the most evilest eyes they've ever seen like how could you find that attractive well that's what i was thinking um and that's another thing with my like whole demon opinion and everything um there's a moment in when they were like in the interview with him um gail and salerno were in there interviewing him and there was one moment where gail got scared Mm -hmm. he said that um he had his head down on the table, and um, Gail was, was hyperventilating. Yeah, and he was kind of starting to hyperventilate. And then there was a moment where, like, he lifted his arms up, and he's breathing really heavy. And it made me the way that I pictured it. It was almost like demonic, and it's almost like what what Gil was saying because yeah, then he said exactly he what said, he was saying. Literally at that time, he got scared because he thought. If this guy starts floating around the room, yeah, I'm out of here. Yeah, he was like, I'm not gonna deal with levitation, and like yeah. the <laughs> fact like, that that crossed his mind, like, right. That's just shows thing. how scary looking he was. Yeah, he had such dark eyes that mm-hmm. just like looked like black holes. Yeah, just so scary, such a scary individual. And then where you could look so child, like, but at the same time, we were saying he looks very childlike. But then there yeah. are times where he looks really scary. It's so weird the way it changes. And he and then a lot. just can be a monster. That's why I'm like I'm saying this guy's demonic. There's like yeah. he's possessed. There's something more to this guy. Yeah. Maybe that night in the cemetery. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Wow. Um, which you know what? I'll save this for the end. I'll save it for the end. Okay. <laughs> so Gil. Frank Salerno and district attorney worker Phil Halpin, they all, as they talk to little Anastasia, they're all getting, like, super emotional, you know, and none of them are able to, like, stand the interview for very long. They have to, like, get up and leave, and the three of them decide, you know what, we're not going to go forward with the kid cases. Um, Not for Richard Ramirez, but strictly to spare the kids from having to go through testifying and all of that they're like we know for sure he's going to get the death penalty for all these other charges so we're not gonna put the kids through that that is so good yeah i'm glad they did that in some ways i would be like well kind of like what we said with the freeman brothers we knew they were gonna get the death penalty or life in prison anyway but we wanted a conviction for eric but like with this it's like i think it's a little different like i want the kids to have justice for what was done to them but also i agree i don't i don't want them to go through that either you know right like that's such an impressionable impressionable age yeah even anastasia said that when she was being interviewed she said that you know this happened to me and it was such an impressionable age mm-hmm. why i'm having a hard time saying <laughs> but um uh, she was saying that, like, you know, she still grew up. She still has a family. You know, she didn't let that define her, which it's I feel great. like, yeah, it's really great. It's wonderful. But I think if if they would have continued to 
you know, her, put her on the stand and have her sit in front of those people, it would have been just, like, that much more scarring to her. Yeah. Yeah. So, on January 31st, 1989, so he's arrested in 85, and the trial doesn't mm-hmm. even start till 89, um, it finally begins, and he is accused of officially 43 crimes, 13 of which are murders. That kind of, over time, I think they connect more to him, and it comes up to, like, 19 murders, mm-hmm. I believe, um, and he's also charged with robbery, rape, and more case um counts but there's 43 of them so i'm not going to read them all (laughs) but there are tons of spectators who show up to the trial and 140 witnesses are called including survivor maria hernandez and um it's just this huge huge deal and colleen nelson is at the trial who is the granddaughter of joyce nelson who was murdered Mm -hmm. and this also made me really upset, too, when she said she had to leave the courtroom to collect herself at some point, and she was sitting next to, like, a teenage boy, and she was like, oh, I wonder if he's a, you know, friend of a victim or something, and then she sees that he has, like, pentagram tattoos, and she's like, oh my god, I'm sitting next to somebody who looks up to the guy who killed my grandmother, and that would be such a, like, uh, the horrifying moment. feeling in your stomach, and, like, ugh. I would want to beat that person if yeah. I were her. Like, I would want to beat the crap out of them. Mm-hmm. Like, and just shake them. Be like, what is wrong with you? Do not look up to this person. Right. Ugh. I don't get people like that. No, I don't either. So on September 20th in 1989, he was sentenced to death by gas chamber. At a sentencing, he said, Ramirez says, I don't need to hear all of society's rationalizations. I've heard them all before, and the fact remains that what is is you don't understand me you are not expected to you are not capable of it i am beyond your experience i am beyond good and evil like you're kind of not because if you were you wouldn't be convicted (laughs) like you okay shut shut up whatever i don't know okay i didn't know that people could still like that even in the 80s people were sentenced to death by gas chamber i didn't Uh, know that was still a thing i didn't either i was like I honestly wow. thought that when you were sentenced sentenced to death, you only either got like the, uh, I think there is there's the chair or mm-hmm. the lethal injection. Yeah, I don't even know if they still do like the firing squad. Mm. I don't think so. Like today. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. think so. I don't know though. I don't know. I always 100%. thought it was just lethal injection. Yeah, honestly, I think that's the only way now. But I'm not 100% sure. But, um, so Gil and Frank go to see him after his sentencing, and he says, are you going to come to my execution? And Gil says, I don't know. And Frank says, yeah, I'm going to be there. I want to put a for sure end to this in my life. Mm -hmm. And I can see that. Um, would you go? I don't know what I would do. I'm kind of like Gil. I don't know what I'll do. I don't know. I think I think I would want to see it actually. I think I yeah. I think I'm on Frank's side. I would want to see it because I don't I think mentally I wouldn't be able to put it behind me. Yeah. Like the way Frank said it, it was like uh it's like closure, like putting a definitive end to mm-hmm. it. 
seeing it through so i don't know i i feel like i could do that yeah i mean maybe it depends on like how you feel on the death penalty oh my gosh death penalty death penalty yeah in the first place um which don't hate on me but i support it to a degree to a degree i I agree yeah yes um i don't think firing squad or i don't think that i honestly don't feel like a gas chamber is is appropriate either no i don't and i'm glad we don't do electric chair either because that's kind of horrible yeah i think that really lethal injection is like the most humane way to do it but at the same time it someone like richard ramirez did something so horrible that why is it fair for him to just die and then and then just be done with it right you know so like that's my one but that's not why people don't support the death penalty right (laughs) typically people don't support it because they like think that a life is a life and why is it yeah like i understand that but my my reasoning is that's that's too easy that's right yeah it's too easy to get away with that i think life in solitary is actually even more a terrible of a torture yeah like just there there is a case i know of where they wanted him to suffer, so they gave him life in solitary, and we'll do that case sometime, but yeah. I think that that's actually more appropriate. Um, yeah. Yes. That would that would be a horrible existence. <laughs> yes, it would be. Which uh, he deserves. Right. So, as he's being transported to San Quentin, which is where he's going to serve his sentence, mm-hmm. um, he's being transported by Frank Falzon, and he confesses to him to previous murder of two elderly women in Telegraph Hill that Frank Falzon had investigated. And he tells it to him because he knew Frank Falzon was on that case. So he knows what this cop is doing and has been doing. And he mm-hmm. confesses and gives details. And so they, all of the officers involved believe there are tons more open cases that they just don't know. Right. I mean, they even say in the documentary that he was, I mean, he's 24 years old. How the heck would it just have been started in that one year? Right. They were like, there's no way this one summer, primarily summer, um, of killing spree is his first rodeo, I think is what they said. Yeah. I agree. I don't, there's got to be more. That just aren't connected to him. And then he was only ever arrested for, like, petty theft, which is so weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, in 1994, in San Quentin State Prison, Ramirez agrees to be interviewed by crime writer Philip Carlo. And he kind of gives his whole life story, and Philip writes this book about him. And it kind of does go into, like, his psychology, too. I haven't read this book, but I would be interested, too. So, mm-hmm. I'm... And it's straight from Ramirez's mouth as well. So, I would be interested in seeing his kind of speaks. view, I guess. Yeah, how he speaks and everything. So, uh, if you want to check out his book, check that out as well. And that's kind of the end of the documentary. I do have some more that happened after the end of the documentary, but... That is the end of... That's where Netflix closes it. They close it with some um, victim impact... Well, not impact statements, but of how they say, like, they're going to hold on to the good memories of their families, which mm-hmm. I think is good. And that's how they close it. Yeah, I think that that was nice. Um, <coughs> wait, I was going to mention one thing about the documentary. I was going to talk about one part that, like... Because, like I said in the last episode, that they were... Um, I wasn't really sure how I felt about 
how well it uh, I don't know. the dramatization yeah the way and the way that they like would they'd switch off to all these different scenes of like cars driving or mm-hmm. you know the gun shooting or blood on something and it was just like this taking up too much time you're like okay come on i want to get back to this yeah the facts Right, and it would just be the same stuff over and over again. But my favorite one, they did that at one point, and I thought it was perfect timing, and I thought they picked the perfect thing. Um, so when Rich- Richard Ramirez was being chased, and they were describing the chase scene and everything, you know, they don't have, it's not like anyone's acting it out, so they need to do, like, a little clip there. Mm-hmm. For, like, a split second, they show the Pac-Man, like, because they're kind of saying, uh-huh. like, oh, the, the, the town's gaining on them, you know, they all uh-huh. know. And so it shows the Pac-Man, like, going up and, like, yeah, <laughs> and, like, eating, like, I don't know. I just, for some reason, I thought that was, like, perfect. So it's it was, like, it. in the 80s, like, it yeah. was, like, such a good, I don't know. Yeah. yeah I don't, it, it was, you gotta watch it and <laughs> feel that moment, because I thought that was perfect. Yeah. Um. So in 1996, he actually got married. To Doreen Leoy. Gross. Yeah. She was a freelance teen magazine writer. What? So she's like an educated person and everything. She started exchanging letters with him in 1985, like re- shortly after he was arrested. And she thought he had this vulnerability to him. And she started visiting him like four times a week. And she was pretty much disowned by her family for this. But. Good. They were married in 1996 at a wedding attended by his brother, his sister, his niece, his lawyers, and an author who started writing a book about his innocence, which I don't know if got published or not, not, because that's completely ludicrous. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, But Doreen told CNN that she thought he was a really good person, and she said, he's my best friend, he's my buddy, and she thinks he's totally innocent. And I'm like, you're... You're stupid. Yeah. You're stupid. And in 2009, he was linked to the DNA of a rape and murder of a nine-year-old girl in San Francisco. Um, that happened in 1984. And after that, their relationship kind of fizzled out. She left. She kind of left him when she found out about that. But, like, you oh. knew he attacked yeah. kids before. But I guess she thought she, he was innocent, so I don't know. She probably didn't realize, like, why they hadn't ever charged him on that. Like, maybe there, she was like, oh, well, he actually didn't do that. Maybe he was telling her he didn't do that. Yeah, but, okay. And on June 7th, 2013, he died of cancer in a hospital after 24 years on death row. He was never executed. Uh, spent a relatively short time on death row. Yeah. I mean, 24 years is a long time, but, like, some people are there for many, many, many decades. You that know, a couple decades. Lesser crimes. Yeah. Um, that gets me so yeah. mad. Yeah, I know. That is so annoying. I mean, I mean cancer is a not, yeah. terrible death, but... Right. Cancer ugh. is not a comfortable way to go. I mean, I guess I, I kind of want to know, like, what kind of cancer he had. Um, and how long he had it for, but no, it's not a good way to go for sure. But at the same time, I wish that he would, he died in probably comfortable because he was in a hospital. He's in a hospital. Yeah. They're not going to make him uncomfortable. Yeah. So he probably died comfortably, which I don't want, I guess I don't want him to, I don't want, 
it's so hard. I know. When you think down to it, you're like, well, honestly, like, I would, as a nurse, I would make him as comfortable as possible. Like, I would not want to, I think morally, you have to look at it and be like, okay, I mean, he did this to other people. That doesn't mean I have to do it to him. Right. Yeah. But you, but you, you kind of want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't, doesn't mean you don't want to. Yeah. So I just have one more little extra thing before we finish, um, which is kind of what a psychologist said about him. Mm-hmm. So, and I won't, uh, this could go on, this could be a whole other episode talking about psychology, but so I'll keep it brief, but mm-hmm. just thought I'd mention it. So one psychologist marked him as a sociopath, which um, he has the total characteristics for someone who has emotional outbursts and is able to have those bursts of like anger and rage and stuff like that and sociopaths do have a conscience but a very weak one where they're able to like ignore it and as opposed to um psychopaths psychopaths um if you don't know the difference psychopaths have absolutely no conscience and they are, but they are able to easily become very, very good actors. They're very good at pretending that they can be normal and act normal, but sociopaths are not as good at, at acting. They're kind of known as weirdos and like outsiders. So they're not as good as blending in as a psychopath is able to. Huh. Um, so sociopaths also are usually the ones just like Ramirez, who have circumstantial issues, such as a bad childhood, that play into um, their life, which is exactly fits his bill. Um, and they're not saying that everyone who has stuff like that is a sociopath, but people like Ramirez are who are a sociopath, they have circumstantial stuff. Mm-hmm. As opposed, again, bringing... As opposed to psychopaths, who... Psychopaths have normal upbringings normal life don't have that circumstantial um event that would change them but are born just born with a sickness in them and mentally so that's a big difference between the two of them and psychopaths have absolutely no conscience like i said so it's kind of like um going back to a couple weeks ago kind of reminds me of uh bell gunnis yeah like she was psychopath she didn't really have a terrible childhood yeah. or upbringing, mm-hmm. and, and she didn't seem to show any remorse, but she blended in and, and deceived all these people. Yeah, she fit in pretty well for the most part, yeah. And then he's a sociopath. That makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. people, he definitely was an outcast. Yeah. And then the last thing I have um, about him that this psychologist said, sociopaths um they're the ones who do disorganized crime which is what ramirez had which means super random thrill kills so which is exactly fits ramirez because like we said previously he he selected totally totally random like he didn't even know who was going to be in the house that he picked um whereas so or psychopaths are very carefully selected and meticulous planners with their crimes. Um, So that's a big difference between the two as well. And so um, this psychologist definitely, because of these 
distinguishing factors definitely marked him as a sociopath rather than a psychopath. And I just thought that was interesting that, uh, that interesting. I found that article, so I threw that in there. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it's kind of cool to hear the difference between sociopath and psychopath, because I... It's sometimes either... hard to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's the Night documentary and case. Again, yeah, I know there's a lot... There's probably a, um, a lot of, you know, options out there about this case, but mm-hmm. this was a good documentary that Netflix put together. So. It was. It played out like a movie. I mean, this whole thing really seems like it is a movie more so than real life. I say that about a lot of things, but I really do believe that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was that was really interesting. I, I mean... I'm I'm glad that he's dead. To yeah. be honest, honestly, but, sorry. Oh no, go okay. on. I was really surprised when I saw he died in 2013. Like for some reason, I thought he had died a lot earlier right. than that. That was pretty recent. And he would have only been like in his like late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. Yep. I think that's crazy. Oh well. Yeah. Good riddance. Okay. Oh wait, I forgot. Oh. To mention some. Um, <laughs> we already we're already talking about like this documentary but i'm i'm gonna bring up this show a lot because um, they just do a lot so um american horror story in season five they have him come because like you know he they host that serial killer party at the hotel but he richard ramirez is featured heavily in american horror story 1984 um where he's dead which, I mean, he doesn't die till 2013, so, like, that's different. But yeah. in their version, he's dead, and Satan brings him back to life, and he's terrorizing people, hmm. um, which kind of goes along with his whole, like, I'm, AHS really took that, like, his quote of, like, I'm a demon sent by the devil, and they took that literally, like, yeah. he was literally brought to life by the devil, and... He, he features heavily, heavily in that season. So he's basically the main villain of ni- AHS 1984. So, yeah. Just thought I'd bring that up, yeah. too. He's in that as well. Oh, but. hey. Back to another reason, another um, opinion I have on the whole him being oh, a demon thing. Okay. I also think that it makes sense that he would die of cancer, too. Because it's like, okay, he's already done his bad on Earth. Now it's time for him to, like... Oh, yeah, to get, die. get rid like, of him. Just like, okay, he his doesn't purpose need to be here. Done. Yeah, his purpose is done. Yeah. So then he dies of something that's, quote, natural, but really it's this disease that's yeah can be brought on, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, that's such an early age to randomly die of. But then again, he was exposed to all those horrible toxins growing right. up, too. Right, yeah. So and he probably was on a, lot was a of good drugs. chance. Yeah, so. probably was a good chance that he was going to get cancer at some point yeah. in his life. Should we look up what kind of cancer he had? Yeah, let's... <laughs> we keep meaning to end the episode and then we don't. I know. But, um, lymphoma? Lim- uh, B-cell lymphoma. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I think with <laughs> lymphoma... I don't know too much about lymphoma, but I'm pretty sure with lymphoma it spreads pretty easily because, like, you have lymph, no- lymph nodes all throughout your body, and so, like, it kind of just spreads to every part of your body pretty easily. Oh, is what I, my understanding of it is, but I don't know too much about it. Yeah, me either. Well, that's it. Yeah. Anyway, 
That's uh, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Um, tune in to Netflix. Yes. To watch it. Anyway, on that note, I'm Casey. And I'm Emily. And you just heard A Sprinkle of Sugar, A Dash of Murder. <laughs>